I have, a, I have a friend who is an atheist, and we were talking one day, and I, uh, I asked him, I said, how do, you, uh, how do you explain all these prophecies in the Old Testament that are fulfilled in the New Testament, especially those surrounding the birth of Jesus? Like where he would be born, uh, he'd be born to a virgin, he'd be born in Bethlehem, there'd be a flight to Egypt shortly after his birth, and his answer was, immediate answer was, well, I think those were written in after the fact. That after it happened, somebody went back and wrote it into the Old Testament scriptures. And I said, well, that's, that's a nice theory, but the Old Testament was completed between the second and third centuries B.C. when you had the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament scriptures. I said, so those things were, they were complete before it ever happened. This is one of those prophecies. We read it as our call to worship. It's in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 and following, that says, For to us a child is born, to, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. 700 years before the birth of Christ, approximately 700 years, Isaiah, who was a prophet, he was a messenger of God, he was a, a preacher in a city he greatly loved, the city of Jerusalem. And he had a 60-year ministry. He was married. He had two children. He was highly educated. He had a very respected position in the royal court. His, his prophecy, his messages, messages were to the royalty of his day. And yet it was very, very gloomy and dark times. Spiritually, things were at a low ebb. These are some of the descriptive words given in the earlier parts of Isaiah as to what was happening in his days. Superstitions, it says in chapter 2, materialism, idolatry, arrogance, lack of good leadership, social disintegration, sensuality, alcoholism, cultic prostitution was practiced at various shrines, child sacrifice went on. Towns and villages had been destroyed, people had been taken away and resettled hundreds of miles from their homes, and so into that darkness and gloom comes this birth announcement. We've gotten birth announcements in the mail, haven't you? Colorful cards, perhaps. Well, what's odd about this one is it is before the birth, roughly 700 years before the birth. And he says in verse 6 about this baby who would be born, the government will be upon his shoulders. Jesus came to establish a kingdom. We hear the word gospel a lot. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, you'll find that the word gospel is used some 90 times. But the word kingdom is used 140 times because he, as the king, came to set up a kingdom. And the government of this kingdom will rest upon his shoulders. And look at some of the names that he has given. In fact, there are four First, Wonderful Counselor. 
wonderful is an overused word today. You can say, how was your dinner? Wonderful. How was the movie? It was wonderful. How was the sermon? <laughs> wonderful, by definition, means marvelous or astonishing or something that brings forth wonder. It causes, it excites wonder in the part of the person who observes it. We see this in the Bible several places in the book of Acts. A beggar who cannot walk is healed by Peter and John. And they say, in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise and walk. And all the people, it tells us in Acts uh, chapter 3, all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. They see this man that was well known as being crippled. And then it says, they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened. They are overwhelmed at what they've just seen. In Acts chapter 6, it tells us about Stephen, full of grace and power. He was doing great wonders and signs among the people. And then with the Lord Jesus in Matthew chapter 21, it says, when the chief scribes and the priests saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to son of David, they were indignant. As a pastor, I am frequently asked, probably the question I get more than any other through the years is, can you recommend a good counselor? And my next, if you've ever asked me that, you know that my next question will be, well, what particular area? Are you talking about marriage counseling? Are you talking about emotional counseling? Are you talking about counseling for an adolescent? Are you talking about addiction counseling? Are you talking about legal counsel? Are you talking about financial counsel? Because even in the, the spheres of counsel that we receive or pay for or seek to give, everyone has specialties because no one can know everything except this wonderful counselor. He needs no one else is counsel. The Bible says God has never sought counsel from others because he has all knowledge, all wisdom. Then it calls him the mighty God. This is a commonly used name for God in the Bible. In Isaiah, earlier, well, in Isaiah it says, A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. In Job, chapter 36, it says, Behold, God is mighty and does not despise any. In Zephaniah, the Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. So we... Think of mighty rightly as someone that's strong and powerful. It may, it may be physical power. It may be physical strength. It may be political power that the person can snap their fingers and get things done. But this mighty God has all power to do whatever he chooses to do whenever he chooses to do it. Now, the early disciples had power, but it wasn't financial, and it wasn't the influence of politics for sure. It was from the Holy Spirit. And that's the source of our power. When the Lord Jesus, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, told his disciples shortly before his ascension into heaven, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So with the message of the gospel, empowered by the Holy Spirit, they went out, and preached, and they won many people to Christ, and literally transformed the world. 
more people on the planet profess to be Christians by far than any other religion. And it's not because they were threatened or because they were, had rifles pointed at them uh, to say this or die. It's because of transformed hearts. You and I are here today because of the disciples there in Acts chapter 1 being empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that same power works in us as the Holy Spirit transforms us into the people God wants us to be. The third name is Everlasting Father. Now this can be the most confusing because when we think about the Bible and the person of God, the being of God, well, we know that the Bible teaches God is one God, one being in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We give the name of that the Trinity, though that word, the Trinity, Trinity is not in the Bible, but the Trinity is in the Bible. Probably the clearest manifestation of this is at the baptism of Jesus, where you have the Father saying, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, the Holy Spirit descending as a dove, and the Son being baptized by John the baptizer. So the Trinity is taught in the Bible, and yet Jesus said, I and the Father are one. So what does this mean when he calls him everlasting Father? Even Jesus said, when you pray, pray our Father. In a sense, in a sense, Jesus is a father to his children. When he says, uh, do you know that God, as your father, I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. When you and I believe in Christ, John chapter 1 says we are adopted, we are made God's sons and daughters. We are adopted into his family. So in that sense, he's, he gives fatherly care to us. Everlasting father, and then last of all, it mentions the prince of peace. Now each of these, I'm a little rusty on my Hebrew so I went back with some of my reference books and looked at the root words of what these were. And the word for peace here is that ancient Hebrew term, shalom, which means more than uh, shalom, y'all. Hey, how you doing? Uh, it, it, means, it means a comprehensive peace in every aspect of your being. That you're at peace with other people, that you are at peace with God, and that you are at peace with yourself. So it's, it's more than just a partial peace. You may be at peace with a decision. There was an older man who long since passed away, but I remember one day at a meeting we had here, he said, Chip, I made peace with golf long ago. <laughs> I never heard it used in that sense. He said, I just gave up trying to let that game dominate my life. You may be at peace with some dimension of your life, but not all of it. And here it's a comprehensive peace. How does this come about? Well, later in Isaiah, he says of Jesus when he would be crucified, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement brought us peace. And then Romans, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So look how these titles, these four titles fit together. We need wisdom. Jesus is the wonderful counselor. We need strength. Jesus is the mighty God. 
We need to be loved and cared for. Jesus is the everlasting Father. We need to be forgiven and to be at peace with God. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But I want you to look at the final verse here, verse 7, the final verse we're looking at, where it says about the growth of his kingdom, the increase of his government, there will be no end. All earthly kingdoms have an end. Think back to empires that have existed that we studied in school. Persians, Egyptians, Assyrians, Babylonians, the Greeks, the Romans. I've asked you before, and some will remember, but what was the symbol of the Roman Empire? I mean, most of the planet would have recognized it immediately. Well, it was a, an eagle with its wings spread, and underneath it were written the Latin letters S, P, Q, R, the Senate and people of Rome. Now, for some of us, we would see that and not have a clue as to what that meant. And yet, there was the most powerful empire in the world at that time. And everyone knew that, but they all pass away. But this one will not. The kingdom of God is forever. You know what this means? It means what God has started, he will finish. So it's a kingdom of justice and righteousness, it says. So who brings this about? Well, the Lord Almighty, it tells us. In the, in the rest of that verse, we'll bring it about. And in the final phrase, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. He is the one who changes hearts. So Isaiah prophesied this approximately 2,700 years ago. The birth of the promised one happened about 2,000 years ago. We are living in verse 7. That's what's happening now. God is building his kingdom. And Jesus, it tells us, going back to verse 6, is building it upon his shoulders. It rests upon him. Jesus is carrying this government on his shoulders. Paul Tripp, in his Advent devotionals, which I recommend if you don't have something you're reading right now to help with Bible study, these very brief devotionals for the month of December... He says about this phrase, the government would rest on his shoulders. He says, what do sinners need? We need to be freed from the bondage of self-rule and welcome to the rule of the one who is the definition of everything that is good, right, true, and loving. Jesus came to liberate us from the kingdom of darkness and to transport us to his kingdom of love and light. This is essential because self-rule is our doom. Let me put it to you in these words. Jesus is carrying the world. He is the one who's doing it. But you and I and all people have other idols in our lives that we want to carry. It may be security. It may be in whatever form you perceive that. It may be a relationship. It may be a position. It may be to be seen by certain people a certain way, a reputation. It could be a myriad of things. You and I will each stand before God. And either at that point, you will be carrying your idols, or your Savior will be carrying you. You will be carrying your Savior in the form of an idol, or your Savior will be carrying you if your trust is in Him.
Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father, we don't understand how all these things fit together, how you could bring about things over the centuries that are very specific. Yet we pray that our trust, our faith, our hope would be in the Lord Jesus, that we would experience and have experienced the transforming power of your Holy Spirit in our lives. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen.